Right, and this podcast is going to focus on the order of American West. Now, I decided with American West to do the podcast on every single lesson. So they're going to be shorter podcasts, but overviewing every aspect of the syllabus that you you may need to know for the exam. And also consider some of the more intricate parts of it, looking at the narrative account, looking at the importance and looking at the consequence question. So the first exa- uh, the first lesson, uh, the first little overview I will do is a background to American West. So first thing you've got to understand is that the American West paper is made up of three questions. One of them a consequence question, where you've got to explain two consequences of an event. The second one, writing a narrative account, basically a chronological list of events that link together with a beginning, middle and end. And then looking at the importance of something to something linking x to y together so i'm going to go through how you do those as time goes on but first of all looking at a background of native american uh, society now what needs to be understood is that when christopher columbus found america he came across a group of people a group that he called the red indians now he called them this because he thought he was in india in fact he just found america Now, there's many different tribes that make up a group known as the Plains Indians. Now, as more men arrived in the USA, the Indians were gradually driven onto the Great Plains, and each tribe had their own acknowledged area on the plains. So this is where the Indians were beginning to be forced into reservations. And this is where it became a problem, because some tribes were massive, such as the Sioux tribe. They were so big that they were known as a nation. And what we need to understand with the American West course is how the Native American way of life was basically squeezed out into nothing. So the first thing you've got to understand is the structure of Native American society and the tribes. So with this, it's just really simple to go over the chief, the council, warrior brotherhoods and the women and children. So the chief. A Native American chief was never elected, nor did they inherit any power. The reason they became a chief was because of their wisdom, their spiritual power, and their skills as hunters and warriors. Now the thing is, they may not remain a chief for life, and only great chiefs were able to convince entire tribes to follow them. So examples of great chiefs were people like Sitting Bull and Red Cloud. But chiefs who lost respect would easily be unfollowed. So as Sitting Bull got a little bit older, he was um, and agreed to move his tribe into reservations. Many of the Sioux tribe decided to follow younger chiefs, such as the Crazy Horse. So chiefs were a conundrum because if the government wanted to discuss anything with the chiefs, the chiefs had to try and convince people to follow them, but they didn't have to be listened to, which caused many individuals to break certain treaties, which made the lives of the Native Americans a lot more difficult in the long run, especially when they became more reliant on the government for food. Now, the council was a group of individuals that took the important decisions. Now, the men of the band would discuss what to do, and the advice of people like the medicine man, the chief, elders, they'd be listened to with respect. But these men wouldn't tell others what to do. They would just come to decisions. Now, the council members would would basically talk until everything was agreed, and while they talked, they would smoke a ceremonial pipe. 
with Native Americans believing that the smoke would inform the spirit world and help them make a decision that was going to benefit the tribe. Now, some councils were made up of all the men of the band, and others, other times, only important men would be there. Now, the decisions they made would be going to war, the next buffalo hunt, but the bands were not bound by the council decisions, so some bands would be very peaceful, while others would be at war. This was something that, for settlers, was very confusing. They didn't understand why some Native American groups could be peaceful with each other, and others couldn't at all. It was a very baffling concept. Then you had the warrior brotherhoods. Now, as well as bands and councils, Plains Indians also had warrior brotherhoods. These were several different groups within a tribe, and young men joined them after proving their bravery and skill in fighting with other tribes. So, for example, within the Lakota Sioux, you had a range of warrior brotherhoods known as the White Horse Riders, the Strong Hearts, and the Crow Owners. Now, the warrior brotherhoods were really important for all tribes because they trained young men in fighting skills. They also taught young men about the beliefs and their values. Now, the problem with the warrior brotherhoods was they weren't under the command of the councils in many tribes, so they could go against something they were told if they believe something different. This happened a lot when the Native Americans were forced into reservations. They made decisions based on the survival of the tribe rather than the demands and their instructions. Furthermore, the Warrior Brotherhoods were also invited to join a guard unit for the whole tribe who organised the buffalo hunt. And that was a really important event which will go down later. And... Their job was also to make sure that elderly members of the tribe, the most respected, were fed and made sure that the tribe was placed somewhere safe after the buffalo hunt had happened. Now, the last group to look at are the women and children. Now, women were very highly valued as the bearers of children, and children were the future of the band. So these two individual groups were very important. Children didn't go to school in Native American society, but they learned essential life skills from their parents and relatives, a concept which really confused white settlers. The sorts of things that children would be taught would be how to ride horses, boys learned how to hunt and fight, while the girls learned how to maintain the teepee. Women couldn't be chiefs and men could have several wives at once, and this was known as polygamy. Now, women were vital in preparing the buffalo following a successful hunt. They processed the hide of the buffalo, which turned it into products which could be traded with other tribes and also helped with the teepee structure. Now, although it sounds like women weren't respected, it must be understood that they were just as important as men because they helped society run smoothly. If a woman's husband was to die, they could remarry. And if a divorce occurred between the man and the woman, the woman would get to keep the teepee, which shows that men didn't fully dominate the relationship under the Native American structure and society. So that concept is all about the Native American structure. Now the next thing that must be considered under this, uh, this Unit 1 of the American West course is the survival and the importance of the buffalo. And the first thing that needs to be addressed before we look at the buffalo is just how difficult it was to live on the Great Plains. So, looking at the map of America, America, the Great Plains are the middle section. And what must be understood about the Great Plains is that 
the conditions were very, very difficult. Even for the nomadic people that the Native Americans were, you had cold winters, you had dry land, you had heavy rains and thunderstorms, really strong winds, and hot summers. Now what we need to understand is how did the Native Americans survive these horrendous conditions, conditions that were very unpredictable. So I'll quickly go through a couple. So horse riding skills was, were really important and archery skills. This allowed the Native Americans to hunt buffalo. They also had a travelling nomadic lifestyle. They lived in teepees which could be packed up in around 10 minutes onto a travoir which was a framework that would carry their belongings. The Native Americans also used every part of the buffalo to survive, minus the heart, which has religious links. They buried the heart. On top of this, the Native Americans also had a, a reverence for the buffalo, which means they have a respect, which means they don't kill too many. And furthermore, during harsh winters, the Native Americans knew their surroundings and they'd move into lodges which were circular and made of earth and timber logs. It would hold up to around 60 people. So the Native Americans were very clever in regards to how they survived on the plains. But one of the most important reasons why they survived on the plains was due to the buffalo. Now, what needs to be understood about the buffalo is that they weighed around 142 stone, 2,000 pounds, and they're around the size of 11 average-sized humans. So the buffalo hunt was one of the most important events in regards to the Native Americans. So before a buffalo hunt, the Native Americans would hold a ceremonial buffalo dance. Now this would, uh, could last for several days, and it was all about bringing luck to the tribe for the hunt and bringing the herd closer to them. Now, by this time, scouts would have been sent out to find a herd of buffalo. You couldn't just charge on a herd of buffalo due to the fact that they could quite easily run, stampede, and hurt a lot of people. Now, what needs to be understood is that only two to three buffalo hunts were needed per year to feed and shelter the band. Now, this is why the, the Native Americans had to have a reverence for the buffalo, so that there was always enough. Now, what would happen is that the Native Americans would use their horses to, once they'd identified and got close enough, they would stampede on the buffalo, they would um, carefully approach them before charging on them so they didn't run away, because buffalo failure could lead to a death of a tribe. Now, once it was successful, so you'd have individuals of the, uh, of the Native Americans who would who would charge down, they'd use their archery skills, their horse riding skills to kill buffalo, then it would be the situation where the the women would surround the buffalo and, and make sure that they began preparing it. Now the way in which this would occur is that women would uh, butcher the buffalo and also children would help. Some body parts like the kidney and liver would be eaten straight away and as mentioned previously, the heart would be buried. This allowed the spirit to go into the happy hunting ground, which allowed the spirit of the buffalo to go back into the earth, because according to Native American beliefs, everything had a spirit, and the spirit could continue. So women would then prepare the buffalo, they would prepare, prepare the hides of the buffalo. The hides were pegged out, flesh was scraped off, hides would be tanned using the buffalo brains, and made into clothing or teepee covers. 
Parts of the buffalo would also be boiled and roasted, and the rest would be smoked and dried out in the sun, which created a dry meat which could last for a long time. And this would be mixed in um, with wild berries and be made into a meal called pemmican. Now, the most impressive thing in regards to Native Americans' beliefs is using every part of the buffalo. For example, the tongue would be used as a hairbrush. Hooves would be used as glue. Bones could be used as knives, uh, bone fleshing tools, sledge runners. Fat could be used as soap, dung used as fuel. The rawhide were used as harnesses and shields. The horns of the buffalo could be used as headdresses, spoons, powder flasks, cups, arrow straighteners. Every part of the buffalo, every part of the buffalo could be used because that's how the Native Americans survived by using every aspect of the buffalo to ensure survival in the long run. Now, another key reason why Native Americans were able to survive and able to hunt the buffalo was because of one more thing, the horses. Now, there were no horses originally in America, and they came over in around the 16th century following um, Spanish invaders who brought their horses to the continent. And in 1640, the Pueblo Indians of Mexico revolted and captured many horses. So from then on, horses were bred and traded between Indian nations and what needs to be understood is that the horses allowed for Native Americans to be nomadic hunter-gatherers living in bands. And as well as hunting, the horse was really good for it, allowing means of transport for home, for family, and it changed the nature of war. People no longer fought for certain reasons and fought for stealing horses. On top of this, warriors could go over a much longer distance and it gave a new reason for war, as I've said, stealing horses. And it also led to horsemanship being a key symbol of bravery and status within a Native American society. And it got to the point where horses were so important that Native American societies would judge their wealth based on how many horses they owned. Status and prestige were measured partly due to the number of horses someone could give away to those in need or those who they owed gifts to. Right then, in the next part of Unit 1, it looks at the Native Americans' beliefs on nature, land and war. Now, these beliefs need to be highly understood because it causes significant conflict with the settlers later on in the course. So I'll quickly run through some of the key basics in regards to what Native Americans' beliefs were with nature, land and war. But before I do that, it must be understood that you understand what white settlers believe and why that could cause conflict between the settlers and the Native Americans. So first of all, white settlers believe in the following things. So land could be farmed and owned. Buffalo should be slaughtered and their parts could be sold for profit. War was all about killing and fighting for as long as possible. Land and money are two of the most important things. Staying and settling in one place and not leaving for a long time. Digging up land to try and find gold. And one of the biggest beliefs they have is the belief in manifest destiny. The idea that all land should be owned and settled on by white Americans. Now, what you need to understand here is how Native Americans would go against 
this this idea. But if we really consider it, it's not the fact that the Native Americans were purposely going against it, because if anything, they were there first. So nature. Native Americans believed that everything in nature had a spirit, and these spirits would sometimes help humans, and that humans were a part of nature and should work with the spirits of nature rather than trying to tame nature to obey them. Native Americans also believed that they could contact the spirit world through vision quests, which were guided by spirit animals like hawks or foxes. And these nature aspects and spirits could also be connected to in spiritual ritual dances like the sun dance, which allow Native Americans to enter the spirit world. And Native Americans also believed it was possible to work with the spirits to charge up magic items which they would then wear to bring them luck or protection, maybe during a buffalo hunt. The land. The land is a big deal. Okay, later on, some of the biggest conflicts that occur between settlers and Native Americans are down to land. And the land was seen by the Native Americans as sacred, the mother of the plains. And there were some parts of the plains that were especially sacred, such as the Black Hills of Dakota. Um, and the Lakota Sioux believed their people had been created in a special hill in these caves by the great spirit, Wakantanka. Now, it must be understood that some Native Americans did farm uh, land, um, but this was at the start and some of them were, became quite um, knowledgeable on how to farm. Um, and in this case, some individual plots did, did belong, uh, belong to families, but this was near sources of water. But over most of the plains, the land was near enough impossible to farm, and not one person owned the land or the property. It was a minority. Now, all Plains Indians tribes did have hunting areas that they used together. And some agreements were made between tribes to share these hunting areas, and especially when the food was short... Conflicts occurred as tribes pushed into hunting areas that were traditionally used by others. So land caused conflict between Native American tribes. One big thing that was seen as disrespectful by the Native Americans was farming or mining. And these activities were seen as disrespectful to the sacred places which would disrupt the sacred link between the tribe and the spirits. So that caused a lot of problems, especially when we get to the gold rush of 1849 in California and the later gold rush in Montana. The last belief to look at is the Native Americans' belief in warfare. Now, survival on the plains was so difficult that it's not surprising that Plains Indians tribes, they did raid each other for food, horses, weapons and people. Women especially. They, they stole each other's uh, women to marry off, and they also stole children to bring up the tribe. Young men were seen as absolutely valuable to the tribe as hunters and protectors, so the concept of war was that they didn't want to lose many men, so a raid would only go ahead, if it's, number one, if it looked like it would work, and number two, if the raiders could escape as quickly as possible um, with very few casualties unlike white white American soldiers who were trained never to run away. Now, this links to one of the Native Americans' key beliefs in fighting called counting coup. Now, coup means success, 
and counting coup was a special type of fighting in which a warrior would attempt to hit or touch their enemy rather than kill them and run away without being injured. Now this gained the warrior a lot of respect from the tribe. Now what you need to do here is understand how this would cause conflict between white settlers and the Native Americans. So when you listen to this podcast, this aspect of the podcast, think about Native Americans' beliefs and how they would cause conflict with white settlers' beliefs. Now the next part of Unit 1 that the exam board state that you need to know is government policy. Now, government policy is something that we need to look at in three stages for this course, and we need to look at how it changed towards the Native Americans. So this first one is looking at government policy in the years 1835 to 1851. Now, what must be understood is that the people who were in control of the Native Americans were the federal government. And the federal government had two big problems and sorry two think the one big problem to consider and two potential solutions the biggest problem was is that the white settlers who were in america believed that the, in, the native americans were savages and did nothing to improve the land and that the white settlers believed they had the right to own the land and they could improve it by farming and turning america into a civilized country and white americans also believed that indians should learn to farm or be pushed off their land into smaller pieces Now, all throughout the 19th century, the US federal government struggled for a solution to the alleged Indian problem. And as the number of migrants to the West grew, the US government had two ways to approach the Native Americans. And that was, number one, keep them apart, keep the settlers and the Native Americans apart. Or two, encourage the Native Americans to become like white settlers. Now, the second part is going to be really difficult. So the approach that the government had at the start was the first one, keep them apart. But as America grew, the government increasingly tried to enforce the Native Americans to become like white settlers, either conform or be seen as hostile. So do what they say or be seen as hostile. So the first part, keeping the Native Americans and the white settlers uh, away from each other is shown in the first two uh, policies so in 1830 you had the indian removal act and the united states president uh, president jackson signed this act which pressured 46,000 native americans living in the east of america to give up their land and in return uh, they got new land which was west of the mississippi river President Jackson then promised the Native Americans that moved that they'd never have to give up their land, which was now known as the Indian Territory. Well, this was going to be a problem because they've now made promises. And this promise was further made more official in 1834 under the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act. And this basically gave a definition to what Indian land was. And the government said the Indian Territory was all part of the u.s west of the mississippi but not in the states of missouri louisiana or arkansas this was to keep the whites and the native americans separate so the government established the permanent indian frontier which was the border this was a problem for the government because what they did was is they gave all land west of the mississippi river to the native americans but at this stage Everything west of the Mississippi River didn't have a massive importance. 
until the 1840s. This is where the government had a problem. So in 1845, Texas became part of the USA. Texas is in the middle. It's now in Indian territory. What does Texas have? There's a thriving cattle industry. 1846, the USA gained control over the uh, territory in Oregon, which had very fertile farming land. Where's that? In the very west of America. In 1848, the USA won a war with Mexico, and they gained vast areas of land, including California. What happens in California in 1849? The gold rush. All of these pieces of land are in Indian territory, so the government had to make that to reevaluate their approach, and this leads to the 1851 Indian Appropriation Act. Now, the Indian Appropriation Act was where the government provided money to pay for moving Indians into Indian uh, who were in the Indian territory into reservations, smaller plots of land. Now these were the same Indians who'd been forced to move from the eastern states who had been promised that they would never have to move. Hunting lands were also allocated to some reservations so the Indians could continue to hunt. Now these reservations were often quite far away from tribes' sacred places and the burial grounds of their ancestors. But on top of this, it also took away some of the key areas of Native Americans' beliefs. Nomadic nature. Were they really going to stay in one place where the buffalo may not have been? On top of this, but they were also seeing people moving around into their land, settling on it, digging it up, going against their core beliefs in spiritualization. The Native Americans were at this stage now where the promise that had been made by President Jackson in 1834 to create this permanent Indian border was broken. And what you will notice about this course is that it only becomes more serious the more in which the Native American society is pushed out, but also the more in which the white settlement society grows. So the more white settlers that come into America, the worse it is for the Native Americans as their land is made smaller and smaller, and the government then have them in a position where they have to become like white settlers or they will die. Okay, now this section is going to look more at the white settler angle. Again, it's unit one, and it's reasons for migration to the West. So what we need to understand is that there were lots of reasons why people made this trek to the West. It wasn't an easy journey. It was a hazardous trek that could kill you. And there were economic reasons, religious reasons. There was an opportunity for a new life. But the way we narrow it down in the GCSE is by looking at the push factors, things that made people want to leave the East, and pull factors, the things that attracted people to the West. So we're first going to look at the push factors. So what pushed people away from the East? So first we had, there was a lot of religious intolerance in the East. There were lots of people who were persecuted for their religious beliefs, mainly people such as the Mormons, who believed in polygamy and that went against the main beliefs of the people in the east who were heavily christian the east was also becoming very overcrowded due to migration and due to the fact that a lot of the west, well, the west had been guaranteed as indian territory the east was becoming overcrowded which in turn 
meant that many people were very, very poor. It led to a lot of conflict and law and order because of the fact that people had nowhere to live. There was homelessness. And one of the key trigger points in 1837 in the East was a financial depression. It meant that many of the banks collapsed, businesses fell, 25% of the people were unemployed in some areas, and those people that did have a job faced wage cuts of up to 40%. So the East was an area which was becoming less desirable, and in this time, the West was becoming more of a chance for people to start again. So the first reason why the West was so attractive was because of the way to get there. Now the way to get from East to West was by using something known as the Oregon Trail. Now the Oregon Trail was the only practical way to get across the mountains with wagons. And the first ever route of the Oregon Trail was publicised by um, Jedediah Smith in 1825. And this began to publicise the route of the Oregon Trail. And as time went on, the process of the Oregon Trail became more, more, well, obviously more used, and people developed their experiences, which made people more confident in crossing the 2,000-mile journey. So the Oregon Trail reports, I mean, they were published um, by John Fremont. They were very influential, and there was a guidebook that migrants used on the trail, and it it convinced a lot of migrants that moving to Oregon was manageable as there was a way to get there. And on top of this, the government also encouraged people to move to Oregon as they wanted to um, establish it as a U.S. state. So in 1841, the government provided $30,000 for an expedition to map out the Oregon Trail and to publish reports to help migrants get to Oregon. This was a big turning point and encouraged a lot of people to want to move because it was safe. So there are numbers to prove that it became safe. So in 1841, um, you had a party of uh, 60 people making the trip west using the Oregon Trail. You had 100 people in 1842, 900 in 1843. It was growing. It was it was a trip that was known as the Great Immigration. And it made people more confident that they could get across without being attacked, without dying of cholera, without being caught in the horrendous uh, climate conditions. So the Oregon Trail was a big reason why people moved to the West, as they felt more confident. There were other reasons as well that made people want to start again. So firstly, um, I mean, the gold rush was a big reason, which we'll talk about later. So in 1848 and 1849, gold was found in the Sierra Nevada in California. It led to around 250,000 people leaving the east of America and moving to the west in the hope of finding gold, striking it rich, moving again and and making their life more successful. Now, some some people didn't move for the gold, but some people moved to become equipment sellers. Some people realised that selling equipment was actually more worthwhile than selling than trying to find gold. They bought cheap equipment and sold it for massively inflated prices. For example, um, the gold pans that people would use were bought for twenty cents, and then some people would sell them on for as much as fifteen dollars. So it was that opportunity to either find gold or take advantage of the people that were trying to find gold. 
There were also stories of how Oregon had this cheap, free farming land that people could use and if people were unsuccessful in finding gold, they could become farmers quite easily and that chance of achieving Manifest Destiny became more real for a lot of people. So the concept of push-pull factors was obviously really important, but one of the key things was this concept of Manifest Destiny. It pulled a lot of people to the to the west this idea of starting again life being something life being something that they can have a meaning for saying that it was god's will that the white settlers of america were to own the land and this is obviously going to cause significant conflict with native americans but we will look at that later on uh, in unit 2 Now, as previously mentioned in the last segment, why people moved west, one of the most significant reasons was the gold rush of 1849. Now, one of the biggest groups to move west were these groups of prospectors. They were also known as the 49ers, who were trying to get rich quick by finding gold. Now, this the concept of gold was found um, by John Sutter's he came across it accidentally, but the, the news got out and it led to a mass migration. And um, what we need to understand for this course is, what were the consequences of the gold rush? Why did people do it and what happened because of it? That's the most important thing for this. Now I'm going to give a bit of a backdrop and then obviously we'll look at the consequences in a bit more detail. But the way to get to California, there were three ways. I mean, you could use the sea route. Now the sea route was very expensive. You could go through numerous, uh, through a couple of routes for, like, through, for example, you could go through Panama. But the problem with that was was that you were on a boat for around six months. It was you could get very seasick. You could get pretty nasty diseases. You'd get very bored, and it, as I say, it was it was very expensive. But one of the main routes, as previously mentioned, was the Oregon Trail. And this was one of the main routes people used to get to California. Now, what you need to understand is that by going to California and becoming a prospector, it wasn't a guarantee that life would be perfect. If anything, the people that benefited the most from the California Gold Rush were the people that moved there and created these boom towns. Towns that were created around the prospectors to sell equipment, to create saloons. And these people took advantage of the prospectors by overcharging them for basic necessities. So, for example, the, the pans to sieve your gold in, but also alcohol. It caused a lot of problems. Now, the first group that we're going to look at in terms of a consequence of a gold rush were the Chinese miners. Now, one consequence of the gold rush was that around 25,000 Chinese moved to California in 1852. There were Chinese companies in San Francisco that paid for these Chinese labourers to come under the credit ticket system. This means that someone paid for them to come to America and they had to pay the debt back through working or by making money. Now, the problem... The consequence that these Chinese miners faced was severe racism by the American prospectors. These American prospectors believed that the Chinese migrants shouldn't have been on their land and some of the actions were, for example, murder, 
Some of the Chinese um, migrants were hanged. You also had examples of claim jumping. Now, claim jumping is when uh, someone finds your land that you're working on and steals it for themselves. You also had some Chinese migrants who, who were victims of something called sorting a claim. Now, sorting a claim is where someone speckles a tiny bit of gold over their land to give the impression that there's gold on their land, a significant amount. Someone would then buy that land for quite a significant amount. The person would leave and then that person is left with a piece of land that is absolutely worthless. This would also happen to the population, the Chinese migrants. Now, what else happened because of the California gold rush? So, migration to California rocketed. There were around 300,000 people in California by 1855. California becomes a state. Now, on top of this, you could argue that this is breaking the Indian frontier. Now, remember, by 1851, the government had started to put Native Americans in reservations. But in 1834, the government said that land west of the Mississippi River belonged to the Native Americans. This California gold rush broke that, that border, which means it is going to cause conflict because these white settlers are coming over to the Indian Territory and digging up the land. This would be seen as highly disrespectful, a significant consequence of this event. Because land had a spirit. On top of this, there was also a significant level of lawlessness due to the mass number of people migrating across to California. Now, the main lawlessness would mainly be due to drunkenness. They would be fighting over gambling. One of the main reasons why they would fall out was due to prostitutes. Now, because there were loads of men and very few women, prostitutes could charge up to $400 a night. This meant that some men became very attached to their prostitutes and if they saw someone else go with them, it could cause a lot of significant fights and in some cases, people would be killed. This lawlessness was due to the fact that so many people went to California to become rich quick, to start again, and in turn, they didn't find the gold. This led to anger, it led to disappointment, it led to resentment, and it meant that anger had to be shown in certain ways. Other people who didn't find the gold either would become a farmer in the land such as Oregon, which wasn't too far from California, or they would just go back home. Now, the point of trying to do this was to try and achieve manifest destiny. If you were lucky and you found a plot of land that had gold that was on the surface, brilliant, happy days. But some people had to work a lot harder and go a lot deeper in terms of the land. Now, you also had... um, the gold rush from California actually helped boost the, the railroad later on. This is going to be really important because the railroad opens up a vast array of consequences. You can talk about the development of the cattle industry. You can talk about the development of um, reservations. You can also talk about the development of how the Oregon Trail becomes a lot safer due to the railroad. This is all because the California gold rush boosts the U.S. economy to the point that it helps fund the railroad, but this in turn is going to cause increased tension with the Native Americans due to the high increase in migration that the railroad caused. So even though the railroad isn't for another 13 years after this event, it still has a consequence on it because the money provided from the California gold rush funds future ventures, which in turn causes this motion of consequences.
So with the California Gold Rush, just remember the concept that it was where around 300,000 people moved to California. Farming began to become popular. But, um, California became a state. People started to settle there. It allowed people to see their destiny coming true, the manifest destiny. On the negative side, there was a lot of genocide. The Californian Indians were killed by, by migrants. The Chinese migrants were killed by prospectors. There was high tension due to this genocide, which causes massive problems later on. But just remember, with the California Gold Rush, it, it was just the first example of how white settlers were managing to get their own way and develop their own life ahead of the Native Americans' beliefs and their society. Okay, the next lesson in regards to American West Key Topic 1 is the problems with the Oregon Trail and the group that really failed to do it, the Mormons. So what you need to understand with this is what the journey was like west and how people found it very difficult to get from the east of America to the west of America. And in regards to this, we need to look at the way people needed to prepare, the actual journey and some problems people could face along the way. So the Oregon Trail started in Missouri and it stretched all the way obviously to Oregon and it was 3,200 kilometres which equates to around 2,000 miles. So it was a journey that could potentially kill the group that went across it. If you didn't prepare very well, then you would have been in a lot of trouble. Now across the Great Plains, you would have faced areas which were mountainous, you would have faced desert land, and you could have faced very hostile Native Americans who would be willing to attack you if you were disrespecting their land. Now on top of this, you also faced massive threats on the plains, including sandstorms, quicksand, rain, extreme hunger, stampeding buffaloes, and this, this was a problem throughout. On top of this, you also faced significant problems of lack of water. Some of the water holes were very diseased, and where some people have used it to bathe in, urinate in, or even worse. Some of the mountains were very, very difficult to climb, especially if you had wagons that were very heavy. And on top of this, it's just a journey you need to be fully prepared for. So some of the key things, as mentioned, started from the Missouri River and ended in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Now, to be successful, you had to start before winter. Well, obviously, why? Because you, you would have had a significant chance of freezing to death if you uh, didn't catch it at the right time or being in horrendous weather that could kill you. Some of the accounts was that around six feet of snow could fall overnight if you were caught in it. You had to begin early enough, so around April time, so that you had plenty of resources. Now in April, that's where the grass will grow, and you would have needed that for your oxen who would have pulled your wagon. Food, you would have needed enough to go for the whole journey, so taking around nine months to a year's supply. Um, including that, you would have needed food that would not rot, so you definitely would be taking fresh food. You'd take food that would dried out, so dry meat that could last a long time. Now obviously that's assuming that everything goes well on your journey. You also needed strong animals. Now a horse would not be able to pull the wagons. A horse would have been good to take, uh, take groups of people. But the main animal you would have needed would have been the oxen. 
These animals were incredibly strong, but they were also very slow, and they'd only travel at around three kilometers an hour. So this could cause problems if your journey were to hit any potential issues. Now, another thing that was really beneficial was if you had large groups, wagon trains of around 20 or more, or 20 wagons or more, there was powers in numbers. But within these powers and within these people, you would have needed skilled individuals. If you took too many elderly people or too many children, it could slow you down. You would have needed people that were carpenters. You would have needed people who were medics, cooks, people that would have benefited your journey across the Oregon Trail over a prolonged amount of time. Another big problem across the Oregon Trail were water sources, as I mentioned, and the biggest killer was cholera. Everyone on the Oregon Trail used the same spot, so you know people washed in it, people urinated in it, and it could have caused significant problems if you were to drink that water. Now, there's one group in particular that didn't do the Oregon Trail very well, and this group was known as the Donner Party. Now, I'm just going to quickly go through the narrative of the Donner Party, and you need to consider what mistakes you think they've made. So they started off in May 1846. There were 300 migrants in 60 wagons. Happy days, that's more than 20. They've got powers in numbers. They were led by the Donner brothers. The problem with this was they had a lot more children and elderly people than usual wagon train journeys have. Now, as a, as a result, by July 1846, when the Donner Party reached Fort Bridger in the Rocky Mountains, the group made the decision to split up. And about 80 migrants, including the Donner Brothers, decided to try a shortcut that an individual called Lansford Hastings had written about. Now, the guidebook that Lansford Hastings wrote said that it would cut around 400 miles off their journey. He described the road as a fine road with plenty of grass and water. Now this was too tempting for the Donner Party or the Donner Brothers to resist and they took this journey. Now the problem was it didn't remove 400 miles from their journey, it actually added 100. Straight away their journey is now going to be seriously hindered and they've got the potential of being caught in the dangerous American winters. So by about mid-October 1846, after horrific delays, the Donner Party finally reached the Sierra Nevada mountains. Now the delays were due to poor land, uneven land. It was a lot slower than they thought. This was something they didn't anticipate because they thought they'd read it from this shortcut. Now in early November, the oxen got to the point where they were dragging the wagons high into the mountains. Now the, the oxen were exhausted but before they could make it over the pass, the axle on the Donner Party's wagon snapped. Now overnight, while they, were, while they were trying to fix this axle, six feet of snow dropped overnight in the mountains and there was a drift of around 50 feet. This meant that they became trapped by snow and they had no chance of getting out of it for five months. Now, within three weeks of them being captured in the snow, they'd eaten all of their food. So the Donner Party were trying to, well, the 80 migrants that separated were trying to survive on sticks, charred bones, mud, leaves, and then they got to the worst part. 
and it was stated that the Donner Party only survived, well, the half of the Donner Party, the 80 that separated, only survived because they ate the dead people that passed due to the freezing conditions. The leader, George Donner, was found after the, afterwards by rescuers from California. He was found with his skull cracked open and his brains were missing. And it said that the Donner Party ate their first human on Christmas Day, 1846. So as a result of this, half of the Donner Party migration, the 80 that took the shortcut, died and the majority of those were eaten by the survivors. By February 1847, a rescue party from California reached the surviving members and the route now, which is actually Route 30 in America, the route at the time was nicknamed the Donner Route in terms of remembrance of the people that had perished in such a horrendous way on that route. Now what you need to understand with this is just the mistakes that the Donner Party made, not just the fact that they ate each other, but what mistakes did they make in the long run in regards to their journey to the Oregon Trail. Okay, the next group to look at are a bit different because they were, unlike the Donner Party, very successful in completing the Oregon Trail and also settle, uh, settlement. Now the next group are known as the Mormons. I'll just give you a bit of a background on the Mormons, then we'll look at their journey in particular. So they were a religious group who were created, they were established by a man called Joseph Smith. And he, he claimed an angel has told him the whereabouts of two buried golden plates. Smith said he dug them up, translated them, and this became known as the Book of Mormon. And it became the basis of a new religion. Now, the Mormons, one of their main beliefs was their following of polygamy. Now, this caused a lot of hostility. So the Mormons settled in various way, in various places across America. They settled in Ohio, Missouri and Illinois. But each time they went there, they had to leave due to people finding it insulting that they were followers of polygamy. Now, eventually, after Joseph Smith was murdered in Illinois, their new leader, Brigham Young, decided that the Mormons should go west to an area called the Great Salt Lake Valley. Now, one of the main reasons why Young chose this place was because it wasn't part of the USA, so they would face less hostility. So a good way of remembering where the Mormons moved, uh, moved to is remembering the word king. K, Kirtland, Ohio, 1831 to 1837. I, Independence, Missouri, 1837 to 1838. N, Nauvoo, Illinois, 1838 to 1846, and that's where the leader, Joseph Smith, was killed. And G, Great Salt Lake, 1846. Now, the Mormons' journey west took a lot of planning, and we're going to look into that in just a second. Now, rather than get stuck in the mountains like the Donner Party did, Brigham Young decided to spend the winter in Omaha by the Missouri River. So he actually decided to build lodges, stay in lodges, and so they saw out the winter, then took the journey. Now, as a backdrop, so this is the process, this is the narrative of their journey. In April 1847, an advanced party set out. Now, an advanced party means that one group went first while the rest of them stayed back. 
This was so the advanced group could mark the way for the rest of the Mormons. And while they went through, they located water supplies, they planted crops, they constructed fords across some rivers. And in July, the advanced party arrived at the Salt Lake Valley. So they're much more prepared, they left at the right time, but more importantly, they set out a path for the other Mormons who were behind them. And in July of that year, in 1847, 1,500 Mormons who were behind them set off. Now, because everything was set out for them, it was a much easier journey. They followed exactly the same route as Brigham Young and the advanced Mormons, and they arrived in August. Now, what this shows is that Brigham Young's planning was absolutely vital. Now, we'll go into it in a bit more depth shortly, but what needs to be understood is that between 1847 and 1869, 70,000 Mormons followed this trail, and it became to be known as the Mormon Trail. And they began to settle in Great Salt Lake, and this created a new area, a settlement, which is heavily populated by Mormons today. And now that you know the journey of the Mormons, it must be assessed why they were so successful in comparison to the Donner Party. So the first thing that needs to be understood is that Brigham Young's leadership and planning were vital to ensuring the success of the Mormons. So before they left Illinois, he organised a count of people and wagons, and this would allow him to plan the logistics of the journey and to work out what each person would need to survive. Now after he did his count up, he consulted with trail guides and explorers to find out as much as possible about Salt Lake Valley so that he could be prepared for when the Mormons arrived. Now further to this, the advance party that travelled ahead of the 1500 Mormons that went later travelled on the north side of the Platte River to avoid hostility from other migrants and they were well supplied with food and they even had a boat to help them with river crossings. So they were very clever in avoiding the people that they knew were going to cause problems and they had something to cross the rivers. On top of this, the migrants were also separated into manageable groups with its own leader. Brigham Young selected people that were going to be skillful to lead groups of Mormons successfully across the Mormon trail. Young also said that was very strict on discipline so there weren't any arguments. He wanted them to be harmonious and he wanted them to get across this trail without any big problems. And they were, and the big thing that Brigham Young taught them at night was to form their wagons into a circle. This was to be safe from potential attacks from Indians or maybe even animals. And along the advanced plan, Brigham Young also set up regular resting places where um, people and livestock could rest so they didn't become too exhausted. So it's a key understanding. Now, one of the key questions you might get on this came up in last year's exam, which was writing a narrative account question. Now, with this, you've got to have a clear beginning, middle and end. So you might want to talk about, you know, why they were going, what happened to them, what their beliefs were, and then how Brigham Young got them from A to B. Now, the next thing that you need to understand with the Mormons is, yes, they've, they've, they've crossed the trail, they were successful, but how did they meet the challenges of Salt Lake Valley? They have gone to an area to create a new settlement, and that's not easy. So Salt Lake Valley, it was a harsh, arid landscape. The lake was salty, 
and the land around it was too poor to grow crops on, so it was very difficult to start off with. And the Mormons were very successful because they worked together on one central plan under the strict control of church leaders and the overseeing of Brigham Young. And the Mormons believed that Brigham Young was God's prophet, so they they obeyed him completely. Everything he said in Salt Lake Valley was totally listened to. So how did they develop the systems to help them survive? So what the Mormons did is they built something called an irrigation system system to water the crops. This needed a large number of people and Young ensured that this happened. So people listened and they developed an irrigation system to allow crops to be watered and to be successful so they could eat and then later trade with other settlements. On top of this, new settlements were also planned to produce particular products. So Brigham Young separated Great Salt Lake into separate settlements and each of them produced certain goods, whether it be crops, minerals, timber. And then that basically would be uh, would have been traded with other people to ensure they could actually have a settlement. And on top of this, Young also sent out a mixture of people within his settlement with skills so that each settlement had a carpenter, a blacksmith a miller, a medic. And to help this, new settlements were set up, not just with the skilled people, but also with an area with more reliable water supplies. So Brigham Young basically turned a piece of landscape, flat, empty land into Great Salt Lake Valley. And then In the future, products such as vegetables, timber, metals and flour from these settlements were brought back to Salt Lake City. So basically, just to to reiterate, there were other settlements set up around Salt Lake City and they were making different things and then they would be brought to Salt Lake City to make sure that they could flourish and be created as a settlement. So what you need to understand for this part of the course is, number one, who were the Mormons? Number two, how did they get to Great Salt Lake without dying like the Mormons? And number three, how was Brigham Young so important to the settlement of this area? Now this next podcast in the American West Lessons is going to focus on the problems that people faced farming on the Great Plains. Now, farming was a real problem, especially in that middle of nowhere land that people hadn't farmed on previously. There were parts of America that allowed um, for people to be outstanding farmers due to the nature of the land. So people, for example, in Oregon and California, they were they used the land significantly to set up farms. Uh, obviously, if they couldn't find gold in California, people did set up farms, and they were very popular and very successful due to the fertile farming land. So, for example, in California and Oregon, before we look at the problems, so bear, bear in mind, California and Oregon are in the West, Conditions were good. There was a mild climate and soil was fertile, which allowed for excellent growing uh, conditions, especially growing spring wheat. And by the 1850s, California actually became one of the biggest exporters of wheat to Europe. There was a lot of money to be made and farming became big business. Large farms could then afford more equipment, which made their farming more efficient in the long run. So, for example, steam-powered farm machinery. And they could afford larger workforces, which meant their job was easier. But it wasn't all easy like that. So by the 1850s, settlement, so staying in an area, also began in the Great Plains. Now, 
This obviously broke the Indian Appropriation Act, but by this time the government were putting policies in place to try and, t to try and look past that. The government actually promoted settlement on the Great Plains, and by 1854 the government had created two, two new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, and uh, this meant that the government were opening up settlement to the, uh, to the white settlers. But problem is, no white settler had ever farmed on the plains before, no one knew what to grow, no one knew how to prepare the land, and there were some serious, serious problems in how they were farming. So just go through the problems, this is a really quick uh, podcast on farming. So the first one, rainfall. So farmers that had come from the east, in the Great Plains, the amount of rain that fell was actually half of what they were used to. And obviously crops can't grow without a steady flow of rainfall. That's a problem. And in the Great Plains, you're in the middle of nowhere, so you really didn't have any access to water. The only way you could have access to water is to, by digging up a well. This was really expensive because wells could be as far as 300 feet down. And a lot of these people that came from the east came with minimal money. So it was problematic to try and get water. So low rainfall caused significant problems. Also, being in the middle of nowhere, you didn't have any wood for fuel. There wasn't a, a vast array of trees where you could go chop down and burn. Um, so firstly, that has an issue with your housing. So this meant that a lot of the houses that people built were out of mud, dung. They were, they were called sod houses, um, which could get easily infested, which was a big problem. And also, if it rained, it could cause them to, to melt in some cases. But in terms of fuel, heat, the only thing that settlers had was buffalo dung. And the problem there was... It burnt very quickly, you'd need a lot, and because word, uh, wood was impossible to access, it became very difficult for people to survive, and this only really improved after the creation of the railroad in 1862. Once again, being in the middle of nowhere meant that families were often miles, and we're talking tens, hundreds of miles away from other people, making lives on the plains lonely. The nearest town could take you several days to walk to, which again opens up dangers, weather issues, attacks from Indians. So, yeah, it caused a lot of isolation, a lot of sadness, and that, that meant a lot of people tended to give up. The ground of the Great Plains. The only way to describe it is probably best by saying just really horrific tangled grass. Now, this made it difficult to plough. Normal ploughs that people got, so the hand ploughs where people would push, broke under the strain. Farmers had to dig up roots with a spade, and this, this was really expensive. And the only way you could do it as a, professionally was by hiring a sod buster, but they were ridiculously expensive. And a lot of these people, as I said, couldn't afford it because they came to the um, Great Plains with virtually no money. From the other lessons, we know that the Great Plains was also very difficult and unpredictable in terms of its weather. Sometimes it could be too dry and too cold in the winter. Um, they weren't used to, settlers weren't used to such difficult areas of farming. But also, because the land was so dry, prairie fires were very common. Prairie fires would burn crops, kill livestock, could even kill people. Fires could start for the most minimal of reasons. Lightning, campfire sparks, steam trains... Um, it really could be many, many reasons why these fires would start. And another big problem for the settlers, which was really unavoidable, was grasshopper attacks. Now this is, some years, vast clouds of grasshoppers would sweep over the plains, destroy everything in their path, including crops, grass, and in some cases even take the wool off your sheep's back. It wasn't just the physical damage they did, they also would also do a lot of damage maybe to a water supply if you had it, so they could, uh, their droppings would uh, pollute the water. 
So, yeah, it was a tough life. Any farmer in the Great Plains found it very difficult. And what we'll do in later units is look at how that developed, how farmers were able to develop their, their way of life, how farmers were able to improve their way of life based on technological advancements and also advancements such as the railroad. Right, now this podcast is going to be focusing on another really important treaty that's in the GCSE syllabus and it's one that can cause a lot of confusion because there's actually two of the same name treaty. This one is the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851. Now what we need to understand for this podcast is first of all, why was there tension, so sort of like worry, between the settlers and the Plains Indians? Then we need to look at the significance of the Fort Laramie Treaty, how it was implemented, the problems with its implementation, and focusing on the skills of the exam, what were the consequences of this first Fort Laramie Treaty. Now, by 1851, it needs to be understood that there was a lot of westward migration due to these pull factors of things such as the California Gold Rush, the concept of Manifest Destiny, Fertile farmland in Oregon. There were lots of reasons why people from the east were beginning to migrate west. However, there was this fear of the Plains Indians, which was always in the back of the white settlers' minds. Now, clearly, conflict was one thing that was unavoidable for the Native Americans, the Plains Indians, because they had to sort of conflict with each other as well as potentially conflicting against the white settlers. The reason why Plains Indians conflicted with each other was because, at times, the resources were very scarce, and raiding other tribes for food, horses and people was one of the key survival strategies that were used by these Plains Indians tribes for them to be able to have some form of longevity. The problem here is that the white settlers travelling across the Oregon Trail would get caught up in these conflicts, and this might be sort of a misinterpretation from the white settlers, but many white settlers believed that they were being threatened. Many believed they were going to be attacked. This is something that was very, very rare. But the stories that were passed around were something that caused significant fear between the white settler groups. And this meant that the government had a conundrum on their hands. They had a problem. What could they do with, any, what could they do with these Plains Indians tribes that were conflicting with one another? Now, on top of this as well, it must be understood that the white settlers did have incredibly racist views about the, the Plains Indians. A lot of the white settlers had this idea that the white race was superior, and this caused problems between the two groups. And on top of this, the white settlers believed that it was their right to technically sweep the Native Americans away from their, their land and for the white settlers to take over with that concept of manifest destiny. Furthermore, it must be understood that white settlers had some anger against the Plains Indians as there were occasions where they would beg for supplies, where they would steal horses and cows from them. And there was this fear that one of the most significant fears from white settlers was that the um, Plains Indians would scalp the men and try and take their women and children into slavery. Now, as mentioned previously in this podcast, that was a rarity. Now, 
what needs to be understood is that this Fort Laramie Treaty was something that was created based on a fear of the white settlers and it was a way of the government protecting these people as they were so important to the government developing this economic prosperity in the ever-expanding America. But please understand, now it's really important, that some white settlers did actually work with the Plains Indians to their, their knowledge about the environment. Um, the Mormons, for example, their settlement in Great Salt Lake they, was through studying the crops of the Pueblo Indians. So it was, it was something that was from a, a majority of the white settlers, but there was a minority of white settlers that did assimilate with the Plains Indians. Now, in regards to the actual Fort Laramie Treaty, it was signed on the 17th of September, 1851. Now, overall, it was signed between representatives of Plains Indians tribes and the American government. Straight away, this leads to some problems. Now, the point of the Fort Laramie Treaty, if you're going to take anything away from this podcast, was that it was to stop conflict between Plains Indians tribes. So there's a few problems that we have to understand in getting the treaty actually signed. Because of the problems with the signing of the treaty, this has consequences in the future which causes problems in terms of its overall success. So the first of all, the government wanted each tribe to name a chief to represent them in the signing of the treaty who would represent a whole tribe. Straight away, this isn't how the Plains Indian Society works. Um, remember, we talked previously, some tribes could have multiple chiefs. Chiefs potentially couldn't, uh, may not be listened to by their warrior brotherhoods. It's something that instantly is problematic. Now, in the eyes of the American government representatives, this didn't make sense to them. And in some cases, the government actually chose representatives from tribes as they got frustrated with the process. So, for example, Conquering Bear, the uh, the representative from the Brule sub-tribe, who wasn't a chief, but he was a respected warrior of several warrior brotherhoods. Straight away, the concept of choosing a chief was flawed. Another big problem was is this treaty had to be agreed by all, all Plains Indians tribes. Straight away, most of the tribes, um, even though a large number did attend, quite a few didn't. And some of them who did attend didn't really have an interest in the overall decision. And a lot of them were there mainly for the free food. So this causes problems as there was no natural interest to be at this signing, which in turn is going to have an impact on its overall success. Now, for the government to keep Plains Indians tribes apart, they wanted the Plains Indians to agree to fixed territories, fixed boundaries, so that each tribe would be kept apart. And they produced a map. Straight away, this was going to be used in the negotiation of the treaty, but this wasn't how the Plains Indians used land. And you know, if we just go back to a revision aspect, some Plains Indians tribes would travel miles, hundreds of miles, to find food. And this was a way of their nomadic lifestyle. Even some enemies used the same pieces of land to make sure there was that aspect of survival. For example, and some tribes, sorry, were, would work together. 
for example, the, the Cheyenne and the Sioux. This is another problem. The Native Americans cannot be fixed to boundaries due to their nomadic lifestyle, due to the fact that they needed the movement to survive. And one of the more obvious problems with the Fort Laramie Treaty was the fact it was written in English. There wasn't enough translators to make sure that everyone who was there would understand it. So those were the problems in coming to the terms of the treaty. And by the time it was signed on the 17th of September 1851, the treaty was signed and the agreements were that the Indians would stop fighting each other, allow migrants to travel through the land safety, uh, safely, allow surveyors from railroad companies to enter their lands in safety, allow the government to build roads through their land and construct army posts to ensure that it's being enforced. And also the Indians would pay compensation if anyone from the tribe broke the treaty terms. This is obviously going to be extremely problematic when we look at the actual problems with signing of the treaty. The government said in return they'd protect the Indians from white Americans, including whites who tried to settle on the land, on Indians land. They also said they would agree um, the Indians to have specific territory for all time. So under the Fort Laramie Treaty, the Sioux were promised to have the Black Hills of Dakota for good. That obviously is going to become problematic later when we look at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And the government also said that they would pay the tribes an annuity, a yearly payment of $50,000 and provide supplies as long as the treaty was kept to. This was a win-win for the government, as many Plains Indians did not keep to this. So, the exam skill. Well, what were the consequences of the Fort Laramie Treaty? The boundaries, the territories that were set out for the Plains Indians, that is going to lead to reservations. Now, reservations were already put in place after the 1851 Indian Appropriation Act. This meant that the government were laying foundations for reservations and in turn that's going to allow more control over the Plains Indians population and allow the government to make these pieces of land smaller and smaller as forms of punishment. Now as a result of this, the Native Americans are going to become more reliant on the government, especially as the aspect of, of food comes into play. The issue of settlement or allowing white settlers and railroad surveyors uh, into uh, the Indian Territory is going to lead to white settlement of the Great Plains. Now this shows that the government broke their agreement. So the Indian Removal Act, which was the uh, 46,000 Native Americans moving west of the Mississippi River, and also the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act that created that border, it is breaking it. Now, because of this agreement, more people began to move across the Oregon Trails through the Great Plains. States like Kansas um, began to develop in vast size and um, growing a huge population. In turn, this is going to disrupt the Indian hunting ground, which could lead to further conflict in the future. The more, the more settlement, the more development, the more crossing over to the west, the more roads and forts that were built on the plains. And as this goes on, obviously this is going to help the government build the railroad in 1869. The money aspect, the annuity. This is going to lead to the Indians losing their independence. Making the Indians dependent on American money means that their supplies, their food, the government had something to use against the Native Americans if they broke it.
that is something we're going to discuss later on in future lessons. Now, did the Fort Laramie Treaty succeed? I mean, most historians would say flat out, no. Why? Well, most of the chiefs, their tribes did not agree to it and it was very difficult to enforce. Many of them continued to hunt and when they wanted a war between themselves, they did it, breaking the treaty. And also, in terms of migrants crossing the Oregon Trail, many of them tended to go off track. Did the government do anything about it? No. They were always going to favour the white settlement because, as I mentioned previously, this was going to help with their economic prosperity. So this is just a general overview. Neither side had success in enforcing the treaty. The government didn't help the Native Americans, and the Native Americans didn't stick to their promise. But as we mentioned previously, why didn't they do that? Well, it's quite obvious.